Pastor Averett is signaling junior church. So we're going to allow the kiddos to make their way with the Franciscos just now. Um, did you receive a handout when you came in this evening? Good, good. I'd like us to take our Bibles to start with tonight. And uh, first, uh, I'd like us to look at Colossians chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. In just a moment, I'll have you stand for the reading of the Word of God. Colossians chapter 2. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Give you a moment just to turn there. Title of uh, our message tonight is The God of Our Music, Forming a Biblical Music Philosophy, Part 3. We've touched on a couple other times. So some of this is going to be somewhat review, maybe repetitious for some in our congregation. It's going to feel... Uh, it's going to feel like it's, uh, it's old stuff. Uh, but there are parts of our congregation that are still new to our church family. Isn't that a blessing, though? And uh, uh, we should strive, as the Scripture says, that we may with one mouth and one spirit glorify God. And so uh, that we, as a congregation, be on the same page on what is appropriate for the worship of our mighty God. Colossians chapter 2 And uh, verse 8, would you stand with me together for the reading of God's Word? I'll read aloud as you read silently. Verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, uh, and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then go over with me to verse 20, and it says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to preach your word today. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, as a church family, our our vision uh, and our sense of what is appropriate for the worship of a mighty, almighty, majestic, holy, transcendent God, Lord, that we would arrive at a greater sense of unity. And thank you, God, for all that that you've done for us as we sang, How Great Thou Art. And as we consider that beautiful line, and when I think that on the cross, God, his son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be gripped by lyrics of hymns like that and songs like that. Would you please, Lord, visit us in a special way tonight, I plead for your grace and empowerment in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you, congregation. So tonight, i got to log back in, it's uh, going to feel maybe more like uh, how Pastor does with Wednesday nights, <laughs> where uh, there's this wonderful obstruction in your way called a, uh, a PowerPoint lap- on laptop. So um, anyway, um, I want us to consider uh, this statement here, and uh, I don't know if I'm advancing it or not, guys. I have to do it through the clicker, right? Got it. Thank you. I, I did? How about that? Oh, now what do I do? Okay, you may have to come help me with that. Not a Windows machine. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> All right, so as Joe comes, um, the, the slide I want you to see of that statement next, and I've I've heard different men who are youth pastors over the years that would say the very same thing. And they say, tell me what kind of music you listen to, 
and I'll tell you your view of your God. I think that's a fair statement. Tell me what kind of music you listen to, and I'll tell you your view of your God. Who is the God of your music? So as we consider some things here, the purpose is to train and equip you to recognize edifying music and immoral music, to appreciate godly edifying music. I've led and taught music for 35 plus years. I've had as many as 75 plus in my choir in Denver, 30 plus in youth choir, 30 plus in children's choir, as well as 15 in orchestra. There were some different times of the of the year that we would put all of those people together. And you can imagine what a sound that would make over 100 people on the platform uh, in musical praise to the Lord. Okay, I'll let you take care of that. My trusty associate, <laughs> Joseph McNamara. He is a servant of the Lord, is he not? Amen. Grateful for him. we go. Join. All right. Oh, you hit the wrong button. So um, one of the privileges that I had over many years is uh, in our ministry in Denver, uh, we had a young, we had not a young man, we had a man and his wife. First, his wife started coming to our church. She was born again. She was going to, um, she was going to a Bible teaching, Bible preaching church probably 45, 50 minutes away from our ministry. She would come by herself. She would tell me and the senior pastor, pray for my husband, pray for my husband. And uh, we didn't know what that meant. And then uh, her husband uh, came and found out that he was a contemporary praise and worship leader at that other ministry about 45, 50 minutes away. And she had been praying for him because the music and the ministry continued to... um, digress into popular culture, and she was so burdened for her husband, and uh, we just happened uh, in that first month that he started attending, happened to have Dr. Frank Garlock um, attend with us uh, and teach a session, and uh, the senior pastor did something very wise while we had Dr. Garlock with us. He said, during the Sunday school hour, Doc, I'd, I'd like you to take questions from the floor on People's questions about music. So Dan came ready with his questions. Popular culture versus traditional culture. He was loaded. And so he continued to fire away. And in an appropriate way, other people still had a chance to hear those as well. But, uh, but Dan became very open after that event. And, of course, Dr. Garlock didn't stay there. And so Dan leaned upon me for continued answers to his questions about music philosophy. And uh, so I had the privilege of discipling Dan Lucarini, and I introduced him to Dr. Tim Fisher and, and, uh, and Dr. Mac Lynch, and uh, they encouraged him to put down in writing his transition from going from contemporary praise and worship m- music to traditional and hymn singing. And Dan did that, and he titled the book simply, Why I Left the Contemporary Praise and Worship Movement. And uh, Dan uh, emailed me his very earliest manuscript and asked me for help on that. And subsequently for that, he picked up uh, the European publisher, Evangelical Press, out of the UK. And between Europe and the United States, 
that book sold more than a million copies. And, uh, and, and it was his personal journey, his personal testimony of how God led him away from that. Now, I'm talking to families tonight. You may have young people, and you're struggling with this issue, and I don't know what to do. I, my teens have their objections, and, you know, I don't want to say because I said so, and although that, that pleases the Lord to please your parents that way, uh, but you also want to have a, a reasoned answer. I, I can't answer every question, and, uh, uh, but we'll answer hopefully several in, in this message, in series of message. I had the opportunity to speak at the Wilds Music Conference, more than 300 music leaders from around the country, and then uh, led the Colorado Association of Christian Schools um, Music Festival for many years, and then had the privilege to go back and conduct that, and that was a lot of fun. So uh, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, pastor just hired me off the street there. Come do something with our music ministry. Uh, but some purposes in this message, and if we run out of time in the subsequent message, uh, is that we would learn, as we read in Colossians, to recognize the lie in our culture, to understand music forms in the Bible, uh, to understand principles of music discernment, in the Bible, and uh, I'd like to, if their time uh, allows, six misconceptions that Christians hold about music. Not the world, but misconceptions that believers hold about music. A brief history of some of the ancient instruments, some that are mentioned in the Bible, and then according to Scripture and science, how music affects us. It literally has a scientific, measurable effect upon the body. Um, but understand this, that music is a spiritual language. Someone said, and I apologize right up front, the notes are not in order. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, repurposing a gift? <laughs> Regifting? So I'm repurposing this message for you guys, but the handout is a previous version. So you'll have to see where I'm at somewhere in the notes. Music is communication. These are from two professors at New York University. Music is a form of nonverbal communication. That is music without lyrics. If you were just going to, the, to a concert or to a, an orchestrated concert and you're just listening to the music, things would be communicated. Um, music is a language. Music is more than a language, said one writer. It's the language of languages. Uh, next... This writer says that like human nature itself, music cannot possibly be neutral in its spiritual direction. Cannot possibly be neutral in its spiritual direction. You see, all music reflects a philosophy. And that's why we started in Colossians 2. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. You know, they've done an examination of many uh, of the current uh, popular writers in contemporary Christian music, and, uh, and they found some interesting things. And numerous, numerous articles in the last five years uh, protesting how that many congregations, they enjoy the, 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 the new style of worship in their churches, uh, but no one is singing anymore. It's just a, a band and a little bit of entertainment, and they clap and sing if they happen to guess what the next word or phrase will be. They can't follow the music very well. Um, so they don't have the 20 rehearsals behind them that the band and singers do. And so uh, a, lot of, a lot of controversy there that, uh, yeah, the church likes the new worship, but fewer people are singing. Fewer people are singing. 
So, but all music reflects a philosophy. Sacred music reflects, by the way, our view of God. Next, majestic music. That means the music that is fit for a majestic God. A majestic and what I would call transcendent view of God. Um, 1 Samuel 16. Let's take our Bibles and turn there next. For some of you, this is very basic, and I apologize. Some of you have been in this uh, operating mode of biblical philosophy, including 1 Samuel 16, for, for decades. But to, again, to help our congregation be on the same page, and I asked Pastor Peterson, is this appropriate uh, for me to speak on? And Pastor gave me the both two thumbs up to uh, speak on this topic tonight. And so 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 23. And if you'll look with me there, 1 Samuel 16, that's in the Old Testament. 1 and Sam, 1 Samuel, 1 Second Kings. Yes, you know the story. Okay, all right, so 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is the infamous Saul, the infamous Saul, and, uh, and he is uh, brooding, and he's dealing with some mental health issues in his life, that by the way, they're tied to disobedience in his life, and most mental health issues are tied to disobedience in a person's life. So Saul is experiencing some severe consequences, some mental health issues, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and uh, in verse 23, it says, And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and sang with his hand. Does that say that? He sang? No, it says, and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So here, Saul is experiencing consequences for his prior disobedience. And uh, he's very troubled, mental health issues. And it says that, that what helped him was a godly man, young man named David, who comes and plays on his harp. And the three effects are these. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. Now, how music affected King Saul? First of all, he was refreshed. That's a Hebrew word, rava, which means physical relief. He experienced physical relief. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to relax and you needed something to relax and maybe you put on some beautiful instrumental music in the background, whether uh, Christian or secular? And, and music has a calming effect upon you mentally and physically. The next effect was Saul was well. And that's a Hebrew word simply tov. And it's his mental or emotional wellness came back. And then it says the evil spirit departed. The absence of evil. Do you know that godly music has the capacity to repel evil? It's hard for them to coexist. It's like mixing water and oil. Now, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One of the things in your notes here is that man is a trichotomy. And we need to understand that first because it relates to the three aspects of Saul's wellness. The three aspects of Saul's wellness. And that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look with me at verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
verse 23. And it says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or entirely. And then Paul writes, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks of a person being in three parts. And uh, the three parts are listed there, body, soul, and spirit. Man is a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. Now notice how that relates to, uh, to our responses in the physical realm. Our body, our physical senses, such as taste, touch, sight, smell, pulse, our soul. What is our soul? It's our mind, will, and emotions. Very important that we understand what our soul is. Mind, will, and emotions. And then our spirit is that innate God consciousness about us. And then notice how music affected Saul in light of this. First of all, he was, he was refreshed. That's his body. He was well. That's his soul, his mind, will, and emotions. That's that mental health, wellness that came back to him. And then spirit, the evil spirit departed. You can sense when there is an evil spirit. God has given you that capacity as a believer. You can sense when there's an evil spirit. And uh, you can test the spirits, try the spirits, as the Apostle John wrote. And so you can test the spirit of a song, the spirit of a song. Um, how music affects us today. Um, and that includes, just as it was there, but parts of music. Music is composed of rhythm and harmony and melody. Rhythm, harmony, and melody. And our body is what is most sensitive to rhythm. Most sensitive to rhythm. And, uh, uh, for instance, you know, trying to teach our little kids at home the song, Jesus Loves Me. I was just shocked and grieved to no end when my kids started bouncing to the beat of Jesus Loves Me. They're so sensitive to rhythm. <laughs> All right, rhythm. Soul. Our soul is sensitive to harmony. That's our mind, will, and emotions that we can, that we can grasp the, the complexity of a song that has harmonies. And then spirit. That's that part of us which gravitates to the melody of a song. Okay? And so uh, the three parts of a person's being are related to three parts of music. Priority of these parts of music. So first of all, moving down each column, the emphasis in our music should be on spirit, which is the melody of a song. And so uh, in any particular piece uh, in our congregational singing, some people will sing harmony, but what needs to be dominant is what is the melody of that song? That should be what's dominant. Secondly, um, is that which affects and touches our mind, and that's that harmony and the complexity of that arrangement. That should be secondary to, to a good melody. And then lastly, is our bodies are sensitive, as we said already, to rhythm, and that always needs to be kept in check. It needs to be controlled. Someone said, if it hits your hip before it hits your heart, <laughs> there's something to be concerned about. All right, so... Six misconceptions now that believers hold about music. Six misconceptions that believers hold about music. Number one, the divine authorship of all music. This is unbiblical reasoning, by the way. This is a person who says, 
hey, brother, whatever God creates is good. Since God created all things, including music, therefore, all music is good. Oh, don't be, a, don't be an old fuddy-duddy and just criticize. You sit back and just criticize, you know, this new stuff that's coming out. And, oh, it just, it really invigorates my spirit. Is that really the purpose of music? Is to incite worship? No, it's not the purpose of music. It's not to incite worship. Because people can be incited to worship the wrong thing. And music can incite a person towards carnality and fleshliness. And we see that in the children of Israel when Moses comes down with the tablets and he says, what is this sound of war? It sounded like chaos and war. You know, there's music out there that sounds like chaos and war. It's not organized, and it's carnal, and it's fleshly, and it stimulates the flesh because it goes straight to the carnal mind. So the divine authorship of all music is a misconception that many believers have. Oh, it's, you know, all the music in the world, it's just whatever is good, whatever sounds good to you, friend. It's just whatever sounds good to you. And is it really that relativistic? So God created all things as this misconception, including music. Therefore, all music is good. Next misconception is the morality of music is found in the lyrics and not the style. It's just the, it's just the, it's just the lyrics that you have to really be concerned about, not the style. You know, and then forgive this illustration. It's going to sound awkward and offensive at first. But, you know, there's a way of singing something like Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Very dominant melody. And then you have some people that sing it with a spirit of carnality. And they get right on top of the microphone. Amazing grace. How and they drag the S. Sweet the sound. You know, and it's this breathy, sensual spirit that's being communicated in that style. So, is there not a style where you can sense the spirit? And so, the third misconception that believers entertain is that music is all moral. Oh, come on, pastor. There's no such thing as bad or good music. Each individual decides what's good for them. There is no baseline. And so that's a third misconception. And then this fourth misconception. Man is autonomous. I, you know, I have that right. And when it comes to appreciating music, and contemporary Christian music, or CCM, says this. Man is the measure of his truth and the final decider of what is music. You try to witness to someone, and you believe that, and then what are you going to say when they say to you, well, you have your truth and I have mine. How many of you have heard someone say that to you? I have, all witnessing over there. You have your truth and I have mine. So how are you going to convince that person that there's an absolute about the gospel? You're living in your own world of moral relativism. So man is autonomous is this misconception. A fifth misconception is what we call reductionism. And that's trying to make something simpler to understand at the expense of it sounding reasonable or logical. Reductionism. Some Christians fall into that. 
uh, while the, it's, they uh, accept the moral neutrality of music that are decided by the elements of the style. All right, so, oh yeah, I've had some Christians overreact when they saw orchestral, orchestral drums in the sanctuary. And, uh, or, or they saw percussion instruments in the sanctuary. They overreact to that because they're judging on basic elements. Um, we'll see from Scripture that that is an overreaction. And then number six is some believers misconce- misconceive Scripture by this view, an encyclopedic view of the Bible. Well, brother, we're Scripture silent, we're free to engage. Show me, show me pornography in the Bible, the word pornography. Can you find that in the Bible? Can you find internet pornography on in the Bible? No, you can't. Is there plenty of principles that discuss that what we put before our eyes and what we listen in our ears that deal with that, even though it doesn't say rock music, it doesn't say this, it doesn't say, wait a second. And this is, the believers entertain an encyclopedic view of the Bible that where Scripture silent, we're free to engage. Now, um, this was shared with me many years ago, um, Dr. Uh, Dwight Gustafson, Bob Jones University, and, and a, he gave this important lecture on this topic of popular culture uh, versus traditional culture. Popular culture and music, by the way, that is embedded in popular culture, it is focused on novelty. It focuses on all that's new. It relies on spectacle, tending to violence and prurience. It emphasizes trivia or things that are trivial. And it has a simplistic predictability in popular culture and popular music. Gives us what we want. Tells us what we already know. I like music that overwhelms me with, with a, a godly spirit and, and, and rich doctrinal lyrics. It's not something that is easily guessed. It's like, oh, I've never heard that before. I've never thought of it that way before. Wow. And it hits you hard. Uh, traditional serious culture is, uh, is um, described as having stability. It focuses on the timeless. It works within the tradition. And it relies on the power of symbolism, including symbolism in language. And it emphasizes knowledge and wisdom. And then it has intrinsic value. It sheds a different light. It stimulates our thinking and our imagination. And in that culture, formulas are only tools. They're not the end themselves. And then form is governed by the models of the created order. Okay? And you can see that not just in music, but in art as well. Next, continuing the same theme, popular culture is enamored with popular aesthetics. It appeals to sentimentality. It celebrates fame. And life and art are continuous. Um, And sometimes it's elevated above moral value. And then the other problem with, or characteristic rather, of popular culture is its fascination with distraction. Pursued casually to kill time. Popular culture discourages reflection. Do we really need more things to do and to distract us in our culture today? Do we really need 
more to do and more things, more gadgets to distract us. It relies on instant accessibility or instant gratification. It encourages impatience. And then it thwarts deep and sustained attention. Now, in traditional serious culture, serious aesthetics are characteristic of it. It appeals to deeper sentiment. It celebrates ability. And its aesthetic message is at a higher level, and it is distilled from life. And then the reflection, it it, it encourages reflection, pursued with deliberation, not uh, by accident. And it requires training. It encourages patience. That's an important note to pause there. You have time and again in the scriptures, both in the life of David and other musicians, where it describes them as being skillful. That's not an accident in scripture. That was a real principle. It was a real concept. These are men and women in the Bible who practiced their craft. And they practiced their music. You know, Pastor Rick and I will sometimes uh, see a, a funny video and we'll, we'll watch it, we'll laugh together. And there's one that, that we enjoy watching from time to time. It's called oh, Amazing Grace. Oh, Amazing Grace. A guy gets up and not having practice, he just wants to get up and sing, gets up in front of everybody, kind of cavaliers the microphone to himself, and he's just not there, uh, either m- musically or mentally. It wasn't a worship service. And, you know, he just killed it. Um, But there are people who take that kind of event seriously. It's not about you. It's about him. It's not about glorifying you and satisfying you. It's about glorifying him. And so if reflection is so important and it requires training and encourages patience, you you can't be as skilled as some of our musicians here Tomorrow. Well, I want to be a a really good pianist tomorrow. Okay, you may have to fake it while a recording plays. You're not going to be good overnight. You know, if someone has said that for a pianist to be able to open a songbook and play most anything on on the sheet music, it usually requires about 1,500 hours of personal time. On that, p- on that piano, on that keyboard. 1,500 hours, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that you can't make a joyful noise from where you are, and the Lord will be pleased with it, singing with all your heart. It doesn't mean it's going to be special music to the rest of us out there, amen? All right? So, uh, um, that requires that, that diligence and training, and it invites careful, repeated attention. So the God of our music, popular culture entertains, and then it leaves us where it found us. Popular culture, it is a commodity that's used, and it eventually is worn out. Uh, Think about how music is delivered today instantly in the digital realm. You know, a song that that came out two months ago is now old. Are you kidding me? And so in some realms, that's, that's the perception, because there's that... That person or that culture or that ministry is so tied to what is new and what is popular. Traditional and high culture, it entertains and transforms our sensibilities. It is a resource that's received and retained. And and then we give credit to uh, Dr. Gustafson who adapted uh, 
these notes from Ken Meyer's book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, 1989. All right. Let's get back to our message here. Pop rock music, it desensitizes us to subtleties, subtleties in the line of music, to the shade and nuance, to design, to color, to form. You become addicted to popular music and never have an appetite for him singing anymore. In fact, my friend Dan Lucarini, who I mentioned already, his, his book several years ago, sold more than a million copies. One of his early testimonies to me that he eventually published in the book was this. He said, Brother Troy, he said, I discovered that when the pastor asked us to go ahead and move in a different direction with our music, that the more that we sang contemporary music, the more the congregation could no longer tolerate hymns. The more we sang contemporary music, the more the congregation could no longer tolerate hymns. That was a sad, eye-opening remark to hear from a man who had led that style of worship, and thank God he moved away from it. But the next thing is, is it desensitizes us to the subtleties of rhythm, harmony, relaxation, tension, contrast. These are nuances of music that some of us have no idea. That's why you need to come join choir on Sunday afternoons. All right. All right. And then, and then it robs us of the joy of the choices that we're admonished to make in Philippians 4.8. I think that verse will come up uh, shortly. But um, Philippians 4.8. Um, next, uh, you can see from ancient artifacts that have been discovered uh, archaeologically over the centuries, different instruments used to praise the Lord. Now, that's kind of a grainy looking picture, but if you look to the center of that cart, you might be able to see a person playing a harp or lyre. And uh, Psalm 98, verse 4 through 6, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Verse 5, Sing unto the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the voice of a psalm. Verse 6, With trumpets. And sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. So here we have the introduction by Scripture itself of these different instruments. You see harp, you see trumpet, you see cornet. All right, and these are sounds, joyful noises made to the Lord. Next, talk briefly about the new song that's mentioned in Psalm 43. The word new is used in relation to music than other subject. New does not mean new in kind, but new in quality or new in nature. Psalm 33, 3 and 4, Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. So, uh, I'm, I wish to say at this point that we all must be cautious not to go and rush to a tangent about, uh, about the issue of music. It's, it's one thing to, to uh, be able to identify uh, that which is, which is wrong with popular culture and popular music and its intrusion into the local church, but it's a totally different thing to overreact when someone gets up and plays a musical instrument other than the piano or organ. 
flute, trumpet, clarinet, um, trombone, all right? So the point is, is we play skillfully. It's not just get up there and offer any junk or slop to the Lord. You get up there and you've practiced and you play skillfully with a loud noise. Because music is a form of communication. And communication doesn't occur unless it's heard and interpreted. So next, the new song. It's a call to all people to praise God. Psalm 96 verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Psalm 149 verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. And his praise in the congregation of the saints. Remember the, that the, the idea of new song doesn't mean it's necessarily newly crafted. Uh, but it's new in its character. There's a freshness about it. Have you ever heard somebody sing with a dull spirit like it's totally boring to them to sing it? I mean, you've heard that. All right? And then heard somebody sing vigorously. Now, when you go abroad and hear God's people, I've lived overseas six years in my life, and I've taken numerous trips overseas, and I've heard God's people sing on nearly every continent. And one of the unusual places I've been is uh, Spurgeon's, uh, C.H. Spurgeon, the famous uh, Baptist pastor in uh, London uh, from the 19th century. I've been to his church. It's still around. Not him, but, <laughs> but his church is still there. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And it's, it's in a curious part of London because the city has grown up around him and the demographics have completely changed. They have a lot of immigrant communities around them. And uh, Dr. Peter Masters is the pastor there. And he speaks in a, you know, in a conventional, traditional, very droll British accent. And he leads the worship himself on Sundays. And uh, all he has is a tiny little organ here. And he's got several thousand people in front of him. And the immigrants that have come to know the Lord. They lean back and they sing full of fervency and zeal to the Lord. While many of the older congregation, they just kind of limp through a song. The immigrants are singing with great zeal and joy to the Lord. And I, I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy. So sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Psalm 40, 149. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the saints. Psalm 144 verse 9. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, upon a psaltery. That's a stringed instrument like a harp. And an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. The new song sung by the faithful to Christ. That's mentioned in Revelation chapter 14 verse 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's not your parents, teens. That's angels, all right? Okay? And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. There is a music that will be sung in heaven. And it will be transcendent. It will be like nothing we've ever experienced. And it says that no man could learn that song but the 144 and 4,000 which were redeemed from the earth. And then on singing the new song versus old songs, I love what John Wesley wrote many years ago. John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley wrote so many of the hymns in our hymnal. 
He said, sing lustily, which means uh, wholeheartedly. That's the old English word for wholeheartedly. He said, sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now. Your own voice. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. John Wesley. You know, there is a music that feeds the flesh. There is a music that glorifies the wicked. Which side are you on? You walking in the light? Are you walking in shadows? Are you walking in complete darkness in your musical choices? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. Let me say, you know, Pastor, I, I know you had to rush through this, but it's given me some serious things to consider. And I'm asking the Lord to shape my musical philosophy as a result. Can I see your hand if that's you? I'm asking the Lord to shape my music philosophy. Yes, yes, yes. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Anybody else? How many of you would say, yes, thank you? How many of you would say, yeah, I'm struggling. I, I do feed my flesh a lot, the wrong kind of music, and I, I know it's got a grip on me. Please pray for me, music that feeds your flesh. Anybody like that? Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Anybody uh, say this evening, well, that's where I am. Uh, I'm on board with what Scripture says, but I even want to do better in my musical choices. Can I see your hand if that's you? Amen. My hand is there too. Amen. A humbleness about us, a spirit about us. Lord, I'm grateful for this time to minister to, to this church family who my wife and I love so dearly, for our pastor whom we love so dearly. And Lord, we ask that you uh, would create in us a spirit of discernment, discernment when it comes to music. Help us to be balanced in our biblical view. And Lord, help us to understand what it means when you call out believers for being friends of the world. Help us to understand what it means to be a friend of popular culture and to desire from our inmost being to please you, Lord, to please you with all our choices. In Jesus' name, amen.